Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. When I have been with friends and that happened and I peed my pants, I, I did lose the room. They did leave. <laughs> I saw her light up and I was like, I'm just going to work. But we are here until one of our last breaths. Yeah. I was just the one that was meant to take care of mama. It's for me to remember every single day is that I always have a choice. Everyone always has a choice. Whenever somebody says, no, you can't, or there's no roles for you, or you have to look like this, I go, I'll show you. I'll show you. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, or should I say, welcome back to Go Ask Alley. We had a quick little hiatus during the holiday season uh, where I had the flu for two weeks, but now I'm back and 2023 will be even better. Okay, so I did ask you uh, through social media to tell me some of the hobbies or interests or skills you developed during COVID. And throughout this whole show, we will be blasting some of them out because some of them are doozies. Mine was clamming, and my guest today has a goodie. Peggy Ornstein is a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and internationally recognized speaker on gender issues, especially those related to teen sex and relationships. Now, I'm sure you guys remember Peggy because she joined me in our first season for an episode called The Talk. Peggy is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and has written for the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, lots more. She's appeared on NPR, PBS, and all the network morning shows. She's written eight books, including the new one that brings her here today, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. This is so nice of you. I'm so glad to talk to you again. I am so happy to talk to you because the last time I talked to you, we were in the pandemic and we were talking about girls and sex and boys and sex and lots of sex. And then I talked to you later (laughs) uh, just on the phone about adult sex. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard you had a new book coming out, I thought, oh, this is the adult sex book. Okay, good. We're going to talk about dry vaginas and menopausal sex and sex after 60. (laughs) And then I got this book in the mail called Unraveling. And I went, that's an interesting title for a sex book and was pleasantly surprised and really (laughs) dove into this book because I, too, had written a COVID book called Allie's Well That Ends Well. You discovered the art of shearing a sheep and dye and making a sweater. I discovered clamming. So we found our purpose in life, both of us. Um, So for me, clamming was the way I didn't just make sourdough, like you say in your book. So Mm -hmm. let's just dive into this because I have girlfriends and I've said, I have Peggy Orenstein coming on my podcast. We're talking about shearing sheep. And they were like, I'm in. (laughs) I'm in. So, um, and by the way, I want to interweave this age old art with uh, parental death and parental illness, like everything that I too am experiencing, because it is something that every human will experience at some point. And um, I'm interested to know how, besides your book, how you're dealing with all of it. But let's start Mm. with the clearest question (laughs) How did you decide? To shear sheep. How did that even come about? You live in Northern California. You have plenty of other things to do. Why that? 
<laughs> I didn't have plenty of other things to do. We had this little thing called lockdown that kicked in. You know, I it's it's been a um I say this in the book. I say I, my editor wants me to have a reason for this and I don't really have one. I'm I've been a lifelong knitter and yes. I think you get when you're a fiber person, you even as I'm talking to you, I'm like I'm like stroking the sweater that I'm wearing because you you get this very like tactile this love of the tactile. And I think that you just start thinking about garments, you're thinking about where they come from. And also I'm the granddaughter of um, Jewish homesteaders from North Dakota, which is probably the topic of a whole different book. Um, I've always had this fantasy. It's just been like a long held fantasy of wanting to make a sweater from scratch, starting with learning to shear sheep, which I thought was going to be easy. And, uh, and I never have time, you know, I have a life and work and a child and a husband and all this stuff. And, and there's one sheep shearing class in Northern California once a year. And weirdly, um, if I was going to be home for it, which I almost never was, it would uh, sell out online within 30 seconds. I don't know who these people are, but there was a lot of people that wanted to learn how to shear sheep, which was not, I mean, Yali, shearing a sheep was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I had no idea. Well, first of all, who knew that they were slippery? You say they're like toddlers with hooves because of the lanolin. I had no idea. Yeah. No, I didn't either. They're incredibly slippery. Plus, you know, they weigh more than you do and they've got hooves and they don't want to be there. And the blade that you're using has no safety and it's this like juddering thing that's moving really, really fast. And, you know, and I just sort of, you know, trial a lot. I thought, yeah, sure, I'm going to just shear a sheep. Um, it was just ludicrous. It was, it was madness, honestly, but it was also an amazing experience. And so I, it was really hard. I mean, I, I sort of thought, yeah, I'll just find a sheep and shear it. It doesn't work that way. They only are shorn certain times of year. People do it. They don't, you know, I mean, it's like a whole, it's an industry. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So tell me, so where'd you found the sheep? So in Sonoma, so, I mean, all of this, the background of all this, so we got pandemic, um, like here I was, nothing but sort of anxiety and depression. And the only thing that was calming me down was like knitting. And I'm talking to my mom, except my mom is dead. So mm -hmm. I'm having these ongoing conversations with my mother in my head because she and I, you know, would always would knit together. And she, your mom taught you she to knit. She taught me to knit. And that was yeah. so common. Yeah. Almost everybody that I met, their mom taught them to knit. It was like a, a, a real, it's a real connection mm -hmm. or their grandmother, but usually their mother between mothers and daughters. And so I was thinking about that. Meanwhile, my dad, um, his dementia is getting worse in, in lockdown. He's in Minneapolis. I'm in Berkeley. Even if I could get on a plane, I couldn't go in where he is because we're not allowed. You know, I mean, like everything is to, and my daughter's filling out her college applications. And I'm thinking about the emptiness. My husband is retiring. So like all the transitions are, are coming at me right at lockdown. So um, I do the clever thing. I decided to, you know, shear a sheep mm -hmm. and uh, as, as one would. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wish I'd thought of it. I, I went clamming. But yeah, I should have I should have sheared a sheep. Clamming would be good. Yeah. We, I don't think we have clams, but that sounds good to me. So so I, I really wanted to learn. This whole book is also the story. I, I really focused on women and yeah. as teachers for every step of the way on, on shearing and spinning and processing and dyeing and all of it. I made sure that all my teachers were women because I wanted to look at women's work and women's art and women's connections and, and shearing is over 95% men. And they keep talking about how, oh, there's so much more women in shearing. That's because it used to be 99% men. So yeah, there's a lot more, but there's none. And it's one of those professions, you know, like seafaring or, you know, hedge funds or <laughs> that, that basically put a, a, a no girls allowed sign on the door. And because of the tools, is that why? I think, you know, 
not necessarily. I think it's partly like this cowboy image that mm-hmm. it has. It's mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean, it doesn't have the romance exactly of cowboys, but it's this sort of lone wolf, and it's hard. It's really physical. Super, super. I mean, I cannot emphasize. I cannot emphasize how physical it is. And some sheep are huge. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of you know physical labor involved, and it just became masculine and like a lot of things it wasn't you know other things like say you know law or medicine women have challenged so they aren't so much no girls allowed anymore but this state has stayed that way i think because of the physicality and also because you have to travel a lot to be a sheep shearer so i think a lot of women it just doesn't seem that appealing um but uh there used to be in australia when a woman approached the shearing shed they yelled ducks on the pond yes i don't know why (laughs) Like, it's such a weird, like, what are these? And then they're supposed to, like, I don't know, put away their porn and pull yeah. up their pants so they, their ass cracks don't show or something. <laughs> right, I right. don't know. But it was, it's such a misogyny. It, it, it was just basically misogyny. Um, so being a woman sheep shearer is still really rare and and kind of political. So uh, I found Laura Kincaid, who is a, a teacher. She is a, a teacher of sheep shearing, and she is um, also manages organic produce farms, and she's 30, and, you know, just like you want to be her. She's so cool. Yeah. So she she was the one who taught me. And yeah, like I said, it is, it's just grueling. Okay. Well, you tell me. It's just, I mean, she can shear a sheep in three minutes. You have to, she, you have to get the sheep out of the pen, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, first of all, they don't want to, you know, I mean, they're prey animals, so they don't want you to be near them. So they're all packed in one. And then you've got to back them out of the pen. You got to flip them on their backs. You got to drag them into the pen. And none of this, by the way, I, I want to be clear. None of this hurts the sheep. Right. Yeah. And the sheep has to be shorn. It's really important that sheep are there's like during one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that um, they in Australia somewhere, they found this sheep that had been it had gone rogue and it hadn't been shorn. You know, it wasn't out in the wild and it was like nine years or something. And it, it had 90 pounds, I think it was, of fleece on it. And it became a TikTok sensation. <laughs> Oh, of course it did. Yeah, of course it did. Yeah. So the shearing of the sheep where they took off maybe 75 or 90 pounds, I can't remember now, of, of wool off the sheep. And you look at this poor sheep, it couldn't eat. It was starving. Yeah. Um, oh, God. So it's really important that they're shorn. We've bred them over, over millennia. They weren't originally like that, but we've bred them to be right. woolly. So they need shearing. Are they dirty? Yes, they're all full of like poo and yeah. muck. And, yeah, you're not, you're not shearing off a white cashmere coat. No, but it's pretty underneath. You can see pretty clearly the I mean, it's just the top layer. That's all yucky. And then you shear it down. And but I mean, I was terrible at it. And and the first one took me an hour and a half. And it was just like a disaster. And I did three. And the last one was Martha. (laughs) Martha, she was one of the only ones that had a name. And she's the one I ended up whose whose fleece I ended up using for my sweater. You write in your book that some man, there was like a Guinness Book of World Record for shearing a sheep. And it was, it was like, I wrote it like down. Like 35 seconds or something. Yeah. It was seconds. I don't know how he does that. 37.9 seconds. Yeah. That's incredible. You can see it online. It's crazy. Yeah. And then you think it took me an hour and a half. So by comparison, um, just because you're, I mean, because it's terrifying. First of all, it's hard, but it's also terrifying. And I cut myself up and it looked like a crime scene. And luckily I didn't cut the sheep, but, um, and it's, it's hard to see. And, and if it senses, like when, when Laura, my teacher would do it, 
that sheep just laid there like a rag doll. I mean, she, you know, it was perfectly content. But those sheep knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And the second they sensed that, it's all over. Yeah, I'd be scared shitless, too. <laughs> so then they start kicking. <laughs> yes, and, here's yeah. this crazy lady. The first time she's holding a shear, it's not going to be me. I get it. Yeah. Is this like a New Yorker cartoon? Exactly. Yeah, it was. So they're, and they're, people are constantly sending me shearing. You'd be surprised how many sheep New Yorker cartoons there are. I'm sure. And the sheep is slippery, right? And the sheep is slippery because it's covered with lanolin, which you probably used when you were nursing your children on, on your my nipples. nipples. Yeah. Yep. Same stuff. This is like rodeo stuff. When you talk about this, I, I, that's what it's, that's the image that comes to mind. You know, it's funny that you say that because, in fact, my grandfather was a rodeo rider and I have a little bit of a rodeo thing. Yeah. Obviously, you are taking care of this sheep, but in, you know, I'm seeing you with the lasso with the sheep on its back and you're roping up the hooves and everything. I mean, that's just my image. <laughs> nah. Nah. Okay. <laughs> and you repeat many times in your book, belly crutch, undermine, top knot, neck, cheek, first shoulder, short blows, long bows, last side. What is that besides your mantra for getting through COVID? <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. No, there's a very set order that you share sheep that is safest for the animal, most ergonomic, sets the animal up to be able to just walk away when it's done and gives you the best fleece. And it was developed by this guy in New Zealand who was called the Nuryev of shearing. Yes. I love that quote. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's a very set way that you do it. Um, that, you know, that starts with the, the belly, which is where the teats are and where the vulva is. And the, that, I mean, that's the scary, to me, that was like, oh my God. I, yeah. I, at one point with one of my sheep, I just froze. I couldn't do it. I had to have the teacher do it for oh, me because oh, I, just, yeah. I was like, I can't do this. Those are delicate bits with the, you don't want yeah. to do anything wrong there. The clamming is fabulous, but I wanted to share that during COVID, because we have a place in Maine that is on the coast, we discovered um, doing some oystering. I don't even know if that's a verb. We'll be right back. And we're back. I took up painting, particularly portrait painting, and I found I was actually quite good at it, and I'm very proud of myself. It got me through the pandemic, and I've actually started to sell a little bit of my work. I identified the fact that I do have what it takes to become a published author. My book is actually coming out in five weeks, and it's taken 20 years to write because I write about being an ex Skipper in Waikiki, my hometown, from 1987 to 1996, and I've just been trying to write this story for years and years. Took a lot of therapy to go back to those rough places. All right, so you have your fluff, yeah. And now, what's the next step? So next, you have to. Uh, I mean, it's it's filthy. Yeah. So you have to clean it, which is the most tedious part of the process. Uh, it's a lot of hauling of water. I mean, unless you have a dedicated setup, which of course I don't. A lot of heating water and hauling it out to the deck. And if you get it too hot, the, the fleece kind of mats, it's called felting. Mm -hmm. And then it's useless. Then you got to go get a new fleece. And then after you do that, you have to card it, which you've probably seen like when you were a kid and were learning about pioneers or something. You take two things that look like dog brushes and you have to make the, the fleece all nice and fluffy and laying in the same direction. And that's 
also a really boring process. And I think in the past, women would do this when they were doing other stuff, but I was so worried about all of it that I had to focus. But what it did, it was interesting because I really, when I was doing this book, you know, I imagined it was going to bring up a lot around my mom's death. Of course, yeah. My mom had died a few years earlier. And like, and, you know, we had, I mean, like all of us, we had a, I love my mom and we had a lot of conflict and there was a lot of issues, but we could always, we could always be fine in a, in a yarn store. You know, mm-hmm. we could always look at patterns, touch the yarn, talk about it. And knitting was a thing that she, I mean, my mom was a very conventional 1950s style housewife. Mm-hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It was a fine thing. It worked for her, but it wasn't who I was. And she was not maybe in that sense, the best fit for being sort of a um, somebody who could guide me as a as a woman. Mm-hmm. And that was always sort of a, a sad thing for me. But I always could get her advice on a, on a complicated sweater. You know, she was yeah. always down for that. And that was great. So I imagined and I knew and it did bring up a lot of um, sadness and, and happiness, joyful memories, sad memories of my mom. I didn't imagine doing this was going to so have, bring up so much with my dad, um, who, you know, had nothing to do with with knitting or yarn or anything when I was growing up, but he he's subsequently has died. But at that point, he was in a facility, um, his dementia was accelerating, it was the pandemic, we couldn't see him, it was really hard. But his aide would, um, we would FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And, and for him, he thought that I was, um, in the room with him when I was faced. He'd ask me, you know, can you hand me the water pack? I'd be like, well, that can't reach it. Yeah. Um, but I could sit and slow down. And it was, you know, it was, I think when your dad, when your parent has cognitive impairment and you're far away, it's hard on a lot of levels, but it's also hard because you can't connect. They can't really, you can't have a conversation with them. You can't talk to them. Yeah. Um, I have a father with advanced Alzheimer's. And yeah. it's, it's a very, it's a difficult thing because when I see him, I can hold his hand. I don't even know if he knows it's me. And you start to feel like this is actually for me, not for them, you know, because yeah. I don't know if he knows who I am. And and it's also, you know, it's a very surreal experience because when your parent has faded away in so many different ways and you're suddenly a parent to this child, you know, it's a very, it does bring up a lot. I mean, a lot. Yeah. So yes, I, I, I completely identify with what you're talking about. Yeah. I started feeling, you know, as I was sitting, because it could slow me down enough to, and he was watching at that time, the twins, the he's in Minneapolis, the baseball team, they were showing reruns where they always won. And he was a little better. I mean, things got you know, get progressively worse, but he could enjoy that game. He did, he thought they were live and he thought they were winning because of something he was doing with his walker. He was still on a walker then. Well, that could be true. But he wouldn't tell me what it was. We don't know that's not true. <laughs> he said it was a trade secret. He wouldn't tell me why. But um, but I felt, it started feeling to me, and I, I don't know if you if this felt this way to you, um, but that that time spent with him it became, it felt almost like a spiritual practice to a mm-hmm. degree and like a way to express a kind of unconditional love that I frankly didn't feel when he was more of himself mm. and to just be there um, and, and 
be with him and witness it. And and at one point later, I talk about how we would watch. He loved Laurel and Hardy, which I hated, um, <laughs> but I would sh- screen share. And I started looking at those videos and thinking, you know, these came out when he was a little boy. And this was what the world looked like back then. Yeah. And he was, I could imagine him at like 10 or 8 in the movie theater, the magic of that screen and watching this. And I just sat there and tried to, you know, love that little boy, like you said. Mm. Um, And it gave me a lot. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if I hadn't been sitting there during the pandemic, carting fleece of all things, if I would have gotten there. Right. And look at that. Look at the two different connections with your parents during this period. I mean, you had the knitting with your mom and the ability to be still and connect with your father. Yeah. Did you ever show your father what you were doing? Because I'm sure he wouldn't have been able to wrap his head around what you were doing out on your deck. Yeah, he didn't understand. Sometimes the noise bugged him. Um, The the carding, they're like, they they look like dog brushes. So they're these metal things and you're kind of brushing them against each other. So they make a sort of you know, metal on metal noise. So that kind of bugged him. I have to ask too, how was your husband and Daisy feeling about this venture? Yeah. Did they, were they like, <laughs> you're crazy, stop it, Peggy, make some chili instead? Or how did they go through this? <laughs> they were, you know, um, I mean, they know me. They weren't shocked. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, different points. They were just like the spinning wheel. When I, when I had to buy a spinning wheel to, spin my fleece and they were like don't bring one of those giant spinning wheels in here we don't have a very big house um and the the dying yeah there was a lot of smells involved (laughs) yeah so let let me ask you about that do they really smell like figs and mildew and all those kinds of things you describe so i tried to do these different things with it um and, and and eventually i kind of just didn't but i i and i got very interested in i mean a lot of this book is also about sort of lore and history and how these things came to be and and the sort of um all these things about color i mean i I got so fascinated by the nature of color and by color as a social construct which was like blew my mind yeah and initially i thought okay i want to do this hyper local thing um i want to dye using colors that i can walk to Mm -hmm. and pluck mm-hmm. so like i i i have had a we, we've moved ellie i know but i had um down the hill down the hill yeah oh, so the other thing that was going on during the pandemic there's a lot going on in this book underneath all the sheep was i live in northern california and the state was burning yeah and i lived in a high-risk fire zone and it was so incredibly stressful and i and i was so very very anxious and we would get um told that we had to be ready to evacuate. You know, there were a few really serious times where they said, okay, there's going to be um, this like wind that only happens once every hundred years <laughs> and it's coming and it's hot. And if something, if there's a spark, we're all, we're all done for and pack your bags, you yeah. know? So we're like packing our stuff. And on one hand, and it brought up a couple of things. One was I noticed my daughter, one of her precious things that she packed was her talus bag, her Jewish prayer shawl bag wow. from her. Wow. About mitzvah and her prayer shawl. My husband's Japanese American, and we had made her talus out of a vintage wedding kimono that, that a friend made for us. And then we tied the knots on it ourselves. And then I made the bag for it and needle pointed it with a pattern of pomegranates for fruitful life. Um, and it made me realize when she grabbed that, and you know, she doesn't really go to temple anymore or anything, but it was important to her how, you know, 
textile has such meaning to us. Yeah. And that was, you know, that, that she chose that really meant something to me. And then I had to go cry for a while. And then um, I was standing crying and looking out the window and we have the, a fig tree in our front, had a fig tree in our front yard, which was one of the things that charmed me about our home when we bought it mm-hmm. 25 years ago. So I decided to, to harvest the fig leaves and use those to make very middle earth colored um, dye. And it smelled kind of figgy, kind of crispy <laughs> and kind of like ish and kind of like rotten mm. Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Daisy was just like, ah, this is disgusting. And Stephen, my husband, I first said, no, it's good. And then he was like, Mm, no, actually, it is disgusting. Yeah, um, not a candle we want to have. Yeah, so I did fig. I did. I did a bunch of stuff from my yard and my neighborhood. But you know, all the colors were basically either yellow or putrid. Um, and you say that beets beet dyes is actually really hard. No, no, no. It's just that it fades, so it's called fugitive, um, which sounds like it's um, on the lamb. Sounds like it's a prisoner. Yeah, but it means it's it's gonna it's gonna flee. Right. So you wash it, but it's going to go away. So people don't use beet dye. So I started getting into all these other colors. I still use natural dyes, but I sent away uh, on the internet for them because I I got tired of the palette. I know what I what I confused it with. You write that it was so hard to do purple. Purple's very hard. Purple. Yeah. Purple. What used to be. you know, royal, obviously. Yeah. We all know that. But why? Because it was such a difficult dye to make and it had to be made from the excretions of a snail butt that was in what is now Lebanon. That's not a lot of dye. How many snail butts does it take? About 250000 for an ounce. And so it was very, very, very expensive. It was worth more than gold. It was rare. And the color that they were really going for was a color that looked like clotted blood, which not so attractive to me. So so what I, I did use in the end chips from a logwood tree, which is a Brazilian sustainable tree, but it is a little fugitive. So you don't want to be out in the sun a lot with it. But it was a beautiful color. I'd show it to you, except um, I actually sent the sweater to Vogue Knitting to photograph. <gasps> Whoa. And they still have it. I hope they didn't lose it. No, they didn't lose Um, it. Yeah. You know, I'm sort of fascinated by the whole project and the ritual and the dyes and the spinning. All of it is fascinating to me. But it's an incredibly poignant book because you discuss so many other things. You do. You discuss aging. You talk about empty nesting. You talk about your parents. Uh, There's so many layers and context to it. It's yeah. Clearly not just how to shear a sheep. Yeah. And you know what, what was else was weird about it was that I st- it really got me thinking about, um, I mean, you know, environmental anxiety, climate anxiety was sure. a big part of this too. But like, we are so conscious. I mean, I'm sure you are. I know I am of like the organic produce and, um, yep. you know, uh, making sure that you're driving your hybrid car and recycling and composting if you are in a composty place and doing all these things. But we never think about fashion. We don't think about our clothes never and that was a whole thing yeah what how are they or made who's making them nope synthetic diet uh, yeah all of it it's fascinating when you wrote that in your book i thought i never think about that i never thought about it i think about everything else i do not think about the things that i you know our armor put on your body yeah put on you my think body. about what go in goes in your body yeah. but not what goes on it and that was i mean knowing about it i went through a period when i was writing this where First of all, I just was like, can't I just buy a pair of pants? I just yeah. want a pair of pants, you know. But I, I, I kind of couldn't 
go into a store. I mean, even once we could go into stores again, I I just would see all those synthetic, which is plastic, right? All the synthetic. So I'd see all these plastic clothes and think about where they were going to end up. And I was, I became like kind of hysterical and, uh, and I would have to leave. I've gotten, I mean, not that I'm better and now I don't care anymore, but I've got, I've got a grip. Um, well, you can't, you can't unknow it, you know? You can't unknow it. Yeah. And, and it really makes me think hard. And I do think really hard about what I bought. And it's interesting too, because like when we were young, you went shopping maybe like twice a year when, you know, with yeah. the, like back to school. Yeah. Back to yeah. school in the spring. But, but fast fashion has so changed our, our relationship and our perception of clothing and shopping that we don't even think about the fact that we're buying clothing constantly, 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 constantly. Um, and most of it's made of plastic and all that just I don't know. I, my, so now my daughter, probably your daughters too, they buy a lot of thrift. Yeah. And I think that kids who, girls, girls particularly, boys don't buy as much stuff. Girls who are um, conscious in this way. And I think our our daughters are much more conscious than we are. When I started talking to my daughter about all of this, she already knew about all of it. She was sending me websites like Good On You and, yeah. you know, where I could check things. And she knew it all. And we just never discussed it. Um, and she buys a lot more thrift. Yeah. I, I started doing that, too, when I became mm-hmm. conscious of it. And also the idea of the amount of money I would spend on something that was, quote unquote, cool or in where I could go in the real real, you know, and get a cocktail dress yeah. for a hundred dollars, you know. But a friend of mine gave me a coat a couple Christmases ago that was all made out of recycled bottles, which I know sounds completely bizarre. It is the most comfortable coat I've ever owned. And so that was my first little window. What? Oh, God, Peggy's making a face. Hi, Allie. I learned how to cook Hungarian food during COVID. My mama taught me all my grandma's recipes, and I know them all by heart now. And I'm so grateful because a year later, my mom passed away. And if we hadn't had COVID, I wouldn't have these memories to carry with me. Cheers. And it's time for a short break. Welcome back to Go Ask Alley. During COVID, this is in response to your COVID Instagram, I became a hiker. I had always loved to hike, and I decided um, that I would start climbing mountains. Um, Instead of sitting home and being sad and missing my husband who had passed away, I took myself outside and I dragged my 58-year-old self up mountains, and I never felt prouder or more empowered. What's the face? Yeah. No, I shouldn't like that. So, it's not. Yep. It's kind of brown, kind kind of like a half dead lawn. First of all, it's going to end up somewhere. It's going to end up in landfill eventually anyway. And there you are. But also um, it sheds microfibers. All that, all those um, recycled bottle things shed these teensy, tiny, invisible filaments all over the organic produce. And when you wash them, um, tens of thousands of them go down your, your clothes washer and they go right into the water supply. And they are the single biggest source of water pollution right now. So, alas. All right, no. Um, I've stopped buying the plastic. You've got that one. So, but, right. but the plastic bottle stuff 
is one of those choices that's not as bad as buying something that's made of what they call virgin materials, but it's not great. I'm yeah, sorry. It, it's just a bunch of plastic bottles. Is that's what you're telling me? <laughs> okay. It's a bunch of plastic and it's, and it's degrading and it's, and it's getting into the wall. I talk about in um, how, when I was a little kid, we used to um, on Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish new year, you're supposed to throw your sins into the lake. And we would go to this, the lake in, in Minneapolis as, as a group, our, our synagogue, and throw our sins in. And I would think of like down at the bottom of that lake, there's like this huge tarry mass of <laughs> generations of sins gathering. Microfibers are a little bit like that, okay. except they're real. All right. Good. All right. I've been educated. So Sorry. no, no, no. So I love this quote. Your husband said to you, you're always trying to prove something unnecessary that no one cares about to nobody in particular. And I love how you write about that you are a bit of a perfectionist, right? You like to win. So this project that you uh, started had to, you had, first of all, had to finish it. There had to be closure and you had to finish it well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would, would I mean, just out on the deck, dying the wool would have given up and been on jcrew.com. Right. So yeah. you have some grit to you that really pushed you through to the finish line. Yeah. I mean, I would say a couple of things about that. I mean, oh, that's my dog. I would say a couple things about that. One is, yeah, especially with the shearing at one point. I mean, Laura, my shearing teacher said to me, you're doing, you know, you've done really great. Of course, I, that's what I want to hear. You did really great. Yeah. <laughs> um, she said, most people are either crying or swearing by now. And I would have been, except I kept thinking, I have to do this for work. And I can be a different person when I'm doing something for work than I can be if I'm not. So knowing that I had to do this because otherwise I was going to have to admit that I didn't um, would push me through. So there was that. But I think what the real beauty for me, one of the big takeaways and one of the real beauties of doing this project for me was being an amateur. And I was never going to be good at it. Uh, I was never going to win. I was never going to be perfect. And at first, if you read the book, I'm always going, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, yeah. terrible. But by the time I got to the point where you're talking about where, where my husband is saying you're always trying to prove something you know, to nobody in particular, I was starting to realize that... Um, being able to be a beginner and finding joy in being a beginner is so rare at this time in our lives mm-hmm. because we really want to be able to do what we want to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And I've always had, for years, I've had on my wall this um, Linda Berry cartoon that's about creativity and about the idea of how we learn shame around creativity and how there's this moment where you're doing whatever you're doing, you're drawing your stuff, you know, like you're a little kid, you, you, you just draw, right? And then somebody says, that sucks. And suddenly you think, wait, what? There's sucks and there's good. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. It's over. Mm-hmm. And um, and you live your life. You know, I, I I always think about Anne Lamott when she wrote Bird by Bird. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's one of my favorite books about creativity. She talks about um, the radio station K fucked K F K D that plays in your head <laughs> and on right. And when you're trying to do something like write or do your you know your creative work. That on one hand, it's telling you, like, you're the greatest, you're, you're, you deserve to be on the New York Times bestseller list. On the other hand, it's saying, why did you think you could pick up a pencil, you completely untalented horror show? Yeah. And you have to shut both those things up enough to do your work. And I've learned how to do that more or less as a writer. Um, but to try to do something new uh, was was hearing all that all over again and finally recognizing that it didn't matter if it was good. It didn't matter if it sucked. The question was, what have I learned here? How, how might I do it differently next time 
what joy am I taking in finding that I can make blue, that I can shear a sheep, that I can take this fluff and turn it into into usable yarn? Um, and just the, that was, the I think, the most valuable lesson of all for me was learning how to be um, little C creative and be a beginner yeah. and, and just enjoy that now at this age. Well, you know, as simple as it is, one of my favorite quotes in life is the art is in the doing. It's not the finished project. It's everything you learn yeah. along the way. So, and you did it. That's the thing. It. That's the thing. I think right. a lot of things that stop us women, particularly of our age, is that we go, well, I'm not going to start that now. Had I started in my 20s, yeah. maybe. But I think we would be even more extraordinary and fulfilled if we actually allowed ourselves to be beginners with certain things. Yeah. So, and just that 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 idea too. I mean, process over product, process over product. If you can't learn that when you're pursuing something creative, you're never going to feel good about it. If you're all about the product, and I couldn't be about the product, and it's because the product was going to be ugly, and and it's not. It actually isn't. I mean, when you see it, it's on the back of the book, mm -hmm. so you'll be able to see what it looks mm -hmm. like. There's a picture of it. If you when you see it just lying there on the floor, you'll think, oh, <laughs> that's not so bad. Um, and it, it's cool. The, the colors are cool. I ended up making stripes. It looks fine laying on the ground. And and it is also, by the way, I don't know why it weighs three pounds, which is about three times what a sweater would normally, a heavy sweater <laughs> would normally weigh. So it is impossible to wear. But it is hideous on my body. It makes me look like a giant pumpkin. I don't know. Partly because of I made it. I got I ran a muck of my own body image issues. Uh -huh. Yeah. And when my um, person who was helping me learn how to design kept saying you need shaping you should put shaping and i kept saying no i don't <laughs> want to put and so it it stands out from my body you need i mean you shouldn't try to pretend like you don't exist is basically the lesson of that which was what i was doing well yes because by the way again women of our age are like you know what i'll just wear a shmata you know we don't care exactly Baggy, comfortable but in fact, there are vibrant bodies underneath all this. So we there don't need are. to wear Charlie Brown sweaters anymore. We can actually wear something that has some shape. It's okay. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. So Peggy, I've asked you everything I could possibly ask you about shearing a sheep. But now it is your turn to ask me a question on Go Ask Alley. And you can ask me anything you want. So what is the question you want to ask me today? Okay, so I just saw the movie um, She Said. Yes. And I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, I did. And I am wondering your theory on why you think that movie did not do well in the box office. My theory is that everybody knows the story. So there's no surprises. Like when I saw Spotlight, for example, I didn't know the magnitude of abuse in Boston. You know, with mm. this particular story, I feel like we've all read about it. We've all we know all the facts about it. So there wasn't a, a kind of surprise about it. I also think that a documentary would be a little stronger than a scripted movie about it. You know what I mean? Like when mm. they had the fake Harvey Weinstein, you know, I just went, oh, that's some guy who kind of looked they're shooting him from behind. Like there were things that pulled me out of the story a little bit. Um mm -hmm. That's why I think it didn't. Why do you? Well, I think I thought that <laughs> an actor that looked like Harvey Weinstein, I thought, oh, poor him. Um, <laughs> no, he didn't even get a line. <laughs> um, no, I thought it was because I, I actually liked the movie a lot, but I thought 
It was because men don't want to see it. Well, yeah. So you got that. And then women didn't want to be triggered by it. So they didn't want to see it either. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I, I think it was an, an audience problem, though. I went with a bunch of girlfriends and I found that we we kind of cried all the way through it, mm-hmm. not because of the story itself, but because whatever it was bringing up. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So it was actually I appreciated that. But that's my theory. Good. I like your theory. I just think everybody has a theory about it. Oh, for hundred percent. I think your I think your theory is right. Actually, now that I think about it, I was I was looking at it just from a producer standpoint. You know what I mean? When I was watching mm-hmm. it, I was like, "Well, we know all this." So, you know, I I know how it ends. I know this. I know that. I don't like again when I said about the documentary. I don't like being pulled out of the story and the back of Harvey Weinstein and then the fake assistant Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm-hmm. There were things about it that I'm like, oh, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. Oh, I know that's mm-hmm. not. Anyway, thank you for the question. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for answering. Okay. Peggy Ornstein, I love this book so much. I really do. I love it. Thank you. Because it took me uh, into a craft I had knew nothing about. So I got a historical education. It was certainly a personal journey that I think everybody will be able to connect to in, in one way or another. And it's beautifully written. It's really, it's, it's oh, a, it is a great book. And thank you for letting me read it. And thank you for letting me talk to you about it. And I know it's going to be a huge success. Aww, and thanks, if you ever shear a sheep again, I would be very interested in coming along. I was going to say, you can join me. I, I'm actually very interested. <laughs> I think you. I could I think I could put together a group of uh, postmenopausal women that would love to share a sheep. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. It's super fun. I am 57 years old and living with metastatic stage 4 cancer for 12 years now. I guess, you know, It was my new thing to be able to write the book and retrace my 10-year, at that time, battle with cancer. During the pandemic, as a teacher and being married to a coach, my husband and I were out of school for a while. So we would drive around in his red truck, hashtag Red Truck Chronicles, and take pictures of the beautiful things we spotted in nature. When I turned 60, I decided every year I would take up a new hobby or learn a new skill or try something that I had been afraid to do. So one year I learned how to play poker. One year I took up Pilates. I started to play golf. And this year I am going to try horseback riding. So I think it's great that you want to encourage people to try new skills but I'm not ready for clamming. Thanks. I can't imagine what my sweater would look like if I even tried to sheer dye and make a sweater. Oh my God. I don't even think my husband could fake liking it. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Gally. Peggy's new book, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater is out now, and you can find her on Instagram at PJ Orenstein. And for more info on what you heard in this episode, check out our show notes. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Go Ask Gally, and follow me on social media on Instagram at The Real Allie Wentworth. 
And listen, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic to dig into, I would love to hear from you. And there is a bunch of ways you can do it. You can call or text me at 323-364-6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to goaskallypodcast at gmail.com. And if you leave a question, you just might hear it on Go Ask Alley. Go Ask Alley is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.